told Mr. Al this morning, I've told several people, I would much rather teach a Bible study on Genesis 1 through 11 than preach a sermon series through it. The reason is because I have a lot more questions than I have answers. But as we turn our attention to God's word this morning, uh, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we turn our eyes to your word this morning, Lord, we acknowledge that you are the main reason that we're here. We come to worship you. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. So, God, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see what you want us to see this morning and hear, ears to hear what you want us to hear this morning. And, Father, anoint my lips so that I might be guarded against speaking something that is untrue or something that would be damaging. But, Father, anoint my lips and our ears so that we might hear the wonderful truth of your word about who you are so that we might, our hearts might be enthralled with worshiping you and that we might walk away today with a greater understanding of who you are and of how incredible you are as the God of all creation. Now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, as we embark on this new series in Genesis titled, In the Beginning, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. But before we start in Genesis chapter 3, I want to just kind of set a few things out as as framework for us as we approach this series. As we look at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we're looking at what's called primeval history. And it's different than the rest of Scripture. It's a a different, uh, it's read a little bit differently. It's written differently. I think we're going to be challenged in a few ways and challenged from a few fronts as we walk through this series. Probably more than I could begin to list, but I want to give you three ways that I think that will be challenged. And this isn't part of the sermon outline. This is just three ways that I want to kind of set out for us from the beginning. I think we'll be challenged doctrinally. I think we'll be challenged doctrinally. We'll be challenged to consider what we believe about the doctrine of creation against what we've been taught all of our life, perhaps, about the doctrine of creation. But not only that, we'll be challenged theologically. We'll be challenged on what we understand about who God is and who God reveals himself to be, a study of God theologically. But then we'll, we'll also be challenged in another way. We'll wrestle with the nature of God's good creation. What does it mean to say that God has made a good creation? <clears throat> you know, there, there are a couple of different ways that we approach a study of Genesis. And probably a way that's been common to all of us is we've heard others teach on it. We've seen it referenced in, in different Bible studies, and we might, uh, we, we might say that we're most familiar with Genesis 
as systematic theology. Uh, systematic theology is that we, we, we study one passage, maybe in the New Testament, and we go back to certain places in different places throughout Scripture in order to understand something about what we believe. And that is to ask the question, what do I believe? And so to ask this question, what do I believe, and then to turn to Scripture to search it out is a noble thing. It's a noble question. But also, it can, it can lead us into some areas, maybe some pitfalls, where we're, we're, we're seeking to make application in ways that may not necessarily be what the Scripture is trying to teach us. And so what I want to submit to you this morning is what we... This is no different than what we generally do on Sunday morning in one sense, is that we approach the Scripture as exegetes, as one who looks at the text of Scripture and says, okay, what does God intend to communicate to us from Scripture through this passage? What is he teaching us about himself, his revelation to us? What is he teaching us about, was he teaching me about me? What's he teaching me about the community of faith at large? in our role, our purpose, our mission in the world. So one of the principles of the Reformation is that we always, the best commentary, the best interpretation on Scripture is what? Scripture, yes. And that's true, and that remains true, and I'm not discounting that at all. What I'm suggesting this morning is let us start with Genesis 3 and work out from there. Work out from Genesis 3 also want to make an assertion, and my assertion is that our primary purpose for gathering this morning first is to worship, but also to be thinkers, to engage our minds. This is, this is good stewardship of the brains in which God has given us. So we want to engage our minds and ask this question, how does this apply to my life? What is God revealing to himself, uh, revealing to me, to us, about himself and about the world in which we live? And so as we approach Genesis 3, 1 through 13, the title of the message is Rebellion in Exile, part 1. We'll look at the second half of Genesis 3 next week. There was just simply too much for us to cover all of it this morning. But I want you to follow along as I begin reading in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now the narrative goes on to show God's curse on the serpent and then his judgment on Adam and Eve, removal from the garden, and then life established outside of the garden, and we'll pick up there next week. But this morning, as we begin here in chapter 3, we begin with the creation or the story of Adam and Eve living in the midst of the garden. And if you're wondering this morning, if you missed why, why we're not starting with Genesis 1 and 2. The reason, in short, is because we're going to cover Genesis 1 and 2 in our equipping class, which begins next Sunday evening uh, at 5.45. So I want to invite you to come back and be part of that. It's an equipping class that I think every one of us needs. And so I hope that every one of us is able to make it and to prioritize these next several weeks on Sunday evenings. We're going to meet in here. For those who are teaching in ESL, uh, we're going to attempt to record uh, our, those who are serving in other areas for equipping classes. We're going to attempt to record uh, the, um, the equipping class so that it can be viewed later. But I, I think that Genesis deals with some incredibly important issues that are confronting the church and confronting Christians today. And it would behoove all of us from, from our, our junior hires, those in youth, our students, up through... Uh, our adults. We all need to understand some of the issues that are surrounding the Genesis text. But if you back up to chapter 2, verse 25, at the end of chapter 2, the text says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now when we read that verse, might seem a little bit odd to us. It might even make us blush. Our minds can't conceive, nor can our eyes handle a world where nakedness and unashamedness coexist. But historically, Scripture tells us that there was such a time and such a place. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1 records for us. And then Genesis 2.4 asserts These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, suggesting that this is a historical account of origins. From Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God's creation is good. Repeatedly, over and over, it was good, it was good, it was good. Until we get to day 6, at the end of day 6, in chapter 1, and all of a sudden it was not good. The reason it was not good is because man needed someone to complete him. Man needed a helper, woman. It's funny, in Hebrew, it's called, man is called ish and woman is called isha. It's not very different, right? It, it's man and woman created by God. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God's creation is good. But it, it It might not be good as we think of good. Because when we think of the word good in the creation story context, we tend to embellish the Garden of Eden. 
We tend to embellish what might be there, what might have been, what it might have been like. We use words like perfection, paradise. We think of an existence without pain, a place where evil doesn't yet exist. But this notion might be more of a reflection of our present day longings than of what the biblical text actually reveals to us. For example, the serpent who deceives Eve. The serpent was there twisting God's word with his evil intent before Adam and Eve sinned. Where did the serpent come from? What was it doing in the Garden of Eden? And why was one of God's creatures undermining God's good creation? It's a good question. Or if we look closely at the judgment language of God's sentence on Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.16, Genesis 3.16 says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Just one of the results of judgment because of sin. If we look at this verse, we realize that pain was already part of the childbearing work of Eve. But after sin, God's judgment comes, and and what happens is there's an increased pain, greatly multiplied pain in childbearing. So I submit to you this morning that we need to kind of reframe the way we think of God's good creation. Paradise, yes. Though it probably doesn't include sipping Mai Tais on the beach, The garden was a place of order. It was a place that was blessed by God. It was a place that was blessed by God because it was a place where God dwelt. It was wonderful in nature. It was a place of harmony. It was a place where God's rule and reign were embraced by humanity. Embraced by Adam and Eve as they exercised their God-given role of dominion over the fish and over the birds and over the animals both livestock and creeping things, we might say both domesticated and non-domesticated animals. It was perfect in regard to the divine human relationship. It was perfect in regard to the human-human relationship. And it was perfect in regards to the human-creation relationship. Work was worship. Look again back in chapter 2, at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it is the word for serve in the Hebrew text. And to keep it is the word for guard in the Hebrew text. Both of these are used throughout Old Testament Scripture in Old Testament priestly language. We we might say that Adam and Eve were priests of God set as stewards over his good creation. And the best part about the garden was that it was a place of unhindered fellowship with God. God walked there in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. They spoke with God as you and I speak. So, let me boil this down as we jump into chapter 3. Whether or not you take a 24-hour, literal, seven-day approach view to creation, or 
whether you stretch that approach those days out over long periods of time or whether you approach the creation narrative as figurative, whether any of these describe where you're at, the point of Genesis 1 and 2 are to tell us that there is one creator God. He is the covenant God, the Lord God, the words used, title. Genesis 1, it's, it's Elohim, Elohim, Elohim as God. He is, he is a creator. He is the one who's orchestrating everything. But we get to Genesis 2. Actually, we get to Genesis chapter 1. And it says at the end of chapter 1, it says that he is the Lord God. He is Yahweh Elohim. Not just God, he is the Lord God. He is the covenant God. And so think about it. Genesis is being written for the people of Israel as they're traveling about, as they're going into, as they're wandering through the Exodus. This is God's word communicating the story of beginnings for God's people to understand something about who God is. He's different than every other God. He's not like the ancient Near Eastern gods of mythology. He's not like Gilgamesh or Enkidu. He's not like any of these other Babylonian gods. He is one God. He is the, he is the one true God, the, the creator. And so Genesis 1 and 2 teach us that the creator is the Lord God. He's not just some distant creator. He is a personal God. And he's a personal God who has ordered the cosmos and the natural world so that he can dwell among his image bearers. And this is the overarching glorious truth of the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, that God creates a place, a space, a sacred space. He orders it, and he puts man in the midst of it to work and to keep it and to guard it and to worship him in the midst of it. And it was a great place. It was good. It was a good creation. Harmony was there. Unity was there. Freedom to worship God was there. Living in freedom was there. And it was all there because God had put it there. So what we encounter in chapter 3 verse 1 is unexpected. The three scenes that we move through, the first one is the scene of temptation. And really we see kind of the the, the shape here of temptation. What's unexpected is when we read in chapter 3 verse 1 that there's an abrupt interruption in the story. You know, a kindergarten teacher began telling a story to her class of three little pigs. But in order to get her class, her kindergartners, to, to really engage and to interact with her, uh, in, 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 the narr- in the story, as she was telling it to him, she began to embellish the story just a little bit. So she tells the class about one of the three pigs. He begins to work on his house, and as he looks over, he notices a farmer pushing a wheelbarrow full of straw. And so the pig walks up to the farmer, and he asks the farmer, excuse me, sir, can I borrow some of your straw? That moment, the teacher pauses to ask the kids, what do you think the farmer said? To which one of the kindergartners replied, holy cow, a talking pig. (laughs) Not exactly what she was going for. 
But when we get to the story here in 3.1, it's kind of like, holy cow, a talking serpent. Where'd this come from? Verse 1, we learn a few things about the serpent. The serpent was made by God, one of God's creatures. You see that in chapter 3, verse 1? Serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This, this animal was more crafty. One of the elements not readily apparent in the narrative is that the author is kind of using a play on words in the Hebrew text. He describes Adam and Eve's nakedness in chapter 2, verse 25, which just immediately jumps over now to chapter 3, verse 1. Everything was, was at harmony. They were naked. They were unashamed. There was no shame, no guilt, no fear, no worries. There was just unity and harmony. And then the contrast is made between Adam and Eve's nakedness and the serpent's shrewdness. The word for naked in the Hebrew is the word arom, and the word for shrewd in the Hebrew is the word arum. It's only the simple changing of a, of a vowel in the language of the New Old Testament. And so the implication of, the, of Adam and Eve are that they're, they're morally innocent, they're unsuspecting, where the serpent is shrewd, he's cunning, and he's calculating. And the word shrewd is morally neutral. But what we see in Genesis 3 is that the serpent's actions were not morally neutral. You know, another thing we learn about the serpent is that the serpent talks. He asked Eve a question. Did God actually say to you, what's he doing here? He's planting doubt. The serpent's question may seem non-threatening, but it begins to plant this seed of doubt in Eve's mind. The serpent shows its distance from God because he drops the title. Instead of saying, did Yahweh Elohim, did the Lord God actually say, he just says, now, did, did God... The distant creator, did Elohim, did God really say? Did he actually say this? You know, he also flips the words around. He flips God's word around to make God appear like he's restrictive instead of giving and generous. Did God actually say you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, God had actually said you can eat of every tree in the garden except one. So Eve takes the bait. She replies back. But in her reply, she also shows that there's some distance from God and that she adopts the serpent's language, calling him God, not the Lord God. You see how this narrative is, is progressing. And in verse 3, she becomes the first legalist in the Bible. Look at what she says in verse 3. You shall not, no, here's what God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She just added something. I can't even go near it. I, if I touch it, I'm going to die. Well, God didn't say that. God said, don't eat of it. From the day you eat, you will surely die. But God didn't say don't touch it. But see, Eve is, is beginning to picture God as, as harsh and as restrictive Eve misinterprets God's words. She recounts, recounts him back to the serpent. And then the serpent replies back in verse 4, you won't surely die. You know what happens? God knows that in the moment that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be just like God knowing good and evil. 
And so the serpent lays out the enticement. And the enticement is you can be like God. Don't you see God is keeping this good thing from you? If God was so good, why would he be keeping this good thing from you? In fact, God is so good, we, I mean, we hear, we hear that all the time in our culture today as a justification. If God was so good, why? Why would he allow suffering? If God were so good, why, why would he allow me to be unhappy? Why would, he make me, why would he make me go through this situation in life? If God were good, if God were good, if God were good, it's the oldest lie in the world. It's exactly what the serpent is doing. And, and by the way, I haven't said that the serpent is Satan. It, the reason I haven't said that is because that, <clears throat> that's not how the, the Israelite would have seen the serpent. I think we get that from progressive revelation in the, in the New Testament. We read in Revelation, we even read in Paul, we read in Peter, calling Satan the great serpent of old. And so progressive revelation does teach us that. But I think what we need to do is we need to understand how, how the Israelite would have seen this text before we can make application to our New Testament, our modern day understanding. And so we see that the serpent is one who promises them, Eve, that she will be like God. In fact, it, it's, it's this idea of don't you see if if you get this, God's afraid that you won't need him anymore. You'll be just like him. And it's the promise of autonomy that's dangled out in front of Eve. The issue that Eve is struggling with, though, is one that hits close to home for all of us. It's an issue of trust and obedience. Do we trust God? Do we trust God enough to obey and to walk in his command? Now, the irony here is that for Adam and Eve, to have they have access to every good thing in the garden. Nothing has been withheld from them aside from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, as we come to the second scene, scene two, the scene of the fall in verses six and seven, we see that the serpent is nowhere to be found, but we find Adam and Eve at the very tree that they're commanded not to eat from. Perhaps Eve has been rolling around in her mind, thinking through, going down the road of, why can't I have it? Why would God keep this good thing from me? In fact, in the New Testament, James kind of gives us an understanding of this process that we walk through of temptation bearing out to sin. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown it brings forth death so it's interesting to read verse 6 the narrator points uh, uh, pa- the narrator of the sto- narrator of the story paints the picture of the reversal of roles right before our eyes look at verse 6 so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one, make one wise she took of its fruit and ate you know, the language brings us back to Genesis 1. When God looked, he, he saw that it was good, speaking of creation. And so here Eve, <clears throat> she looks upon the tree, and she sees that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was delightful to the eyes and that it would make her wise. 
And so she takes matters into her own hands, both literally and figuratively, and chooses her own way over God's way. She ate the fruit, but that wasn't the end of it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate too. And again, we see another reversal of the roles where Adam has remained a silent party to the whole episode. And he's even gone as far as to partake in Eve's reckless abandonment of God's goodness. Together, together they've tasted the forbidden fruit. For the first time, they've acted independently of God. Sin has changed everything for them. It turns out the serpent was right, at least half right. They didn't die immediately. They haven't died yet. But they would be banished and exiled from the garden for the rest of their earthly lives. But I want to highlight one more role reversal that we see. It all began with one other role reversal where Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to serve and to guard. Why was Adam allowing the serpent, who didn't belong in the garden, to speak with Eve? And why was Eve talking with him? You see, Adam and Eve had already forsaken their role of serving and guarding and leading and exercising dominion over creation so that creation is now exercising dominion over them. Creation is now leading them astray, whereas they were supposed to be leading creation. So verse 7 tells us that their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. Now remember back to this contrast between naked and shrewdness. Adam and Eve, in their moral innocence, were naive in some ways, but not naive in a negative way. They simply were they were free from the bondage of knowing evil experientially. They knew moral evil and moral good. They knew that it was wrong. They knew that God had commanded them not to eat of the tree, not to eat of the fruit that was there in the midst of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil. They knew that intellectually, but they did not know that experientially. So there's a different word now that's introduced in verse 7 to describe their nakedness. It's no longer referring to their innocence before God. Now it refers to their guilt before God. Instead of using the word arom, it's now arom. And it's a word that's used in Deuteronomy 28.48. In Deuteronomy 28.48, this is uh, a, a place where curse, the curse is listed for Israel if they choose not to follow God, if they choose disobedience. And here's what it says, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron around your neck until he has destroyed you. You see, it it speaks of the curse and the state of Israel in exile. It speaks of them being punished for their failure to trust and obey God's word. And it's the same thing that we see happening now in verse 7. There's going to be consequence. There's going to be a punishment, a judgment for them 
sinning and eating of the fruit. For the first time ever, fear and guilt have gripped the hearts of Adam and Eve. They now know something they never knew before. They had done the unthinkable. One of the simple lessons learned from Adam and Eve is that sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word and God's goodness. Sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word and God's goodness. That's exactly what happened for Adam and Eve. And at the close of the scene, Adam and Eve, they're experiencing shame. They realized that they were naked, so they, they went and sewed fig leaves together to try to hide their shame and their guilt. And as the third scene opens up, the confrontation, we find Adam and Eve hiding in the trees amidst the garden. In fact, it says that they heard the Lord God walking in the garden and they hid from the presence of the Lord God in verse 8. So we know how the rest of the story there unfolds. Verse 9, the Lord says, Adam, where are you? Adam comes out in verse 10, he says, basically look at the, the progression of the verse, I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, so I hid. To which the Lord asked in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Adam and Eve knew that they had sinned against God and because of that, the first time, this is the first time they experience fear in the presence of God. Fear which causes them to want to hide. You and I do the same thing when it comes to sin. We, we want to hide. We certainly don't want our sins known to the world. You know, but one of the things Genesis 3 teaches us is that we can't hide from God. We can't, we can't lie to God. Did you eat of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? No, 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 I didn't do that, God. Why are you clothed? What? Saw these fig leaves and I thought it'd be a good idea to put them on. It's not how it worked. He knew. She knew. Not only did this break the relationship between them and God, it caused division in the relationship between one another. They put on clothes because, or they put on these fig leaves because they saw one another naked. And they had shame. They had guilt. It introduces this division in the human-human relationship as well. So God confronts their sin. And then in verse 12 and 13, we have the blame game that starts happening. We do this too, don't we? We always blame it on someone else. It was someone else's fault. It's funny when, when it happens with little kids, right? But then when it happens with adults, it's not quite as funny. So we do this blame game. We don't want to own up to our own sin. We don't want to accept that we are the reason that things are messed up. We don't want to accept that we are the reason that we've put ourselves maybe in a particular situation. So Adam blames, and get this, Adam blames the woman and God in the same sentence. Why have you done this? Well, the woman you gave me, right, gave me a fruit. Now a lot could be said here about 
there being an equality pre-fall for man and woman. And next week we'll get into the curse that happens uh, as a result of this and the struggle that's now put in relationships. But, but one very common view among scholarship is that Adam and Eve were side by side serving, serving co-laborers as God's priests in the midst of the garden. And what happens in the moment whenever they take of the fruit and they disobey God is that they introduce disorder and chaos back into God's good, ordered creation. And so I want to close by asking a few questions there at the bottom of your outline and see if we can kind of wrap all of this together with some application and, and help maybe wrap our minds around what what we're to take from Genesis 3 in this first half. The first question, what is sin? Well, as our children learned in the catechism this past semester, rejecting and ignoring God and the world he created. Right? That is sin. Rejecting and ignoring God and the world he created. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is refusing to submit to him, refusing to accept him as Lord. And what sin does is sin places self in the position of God. Because when we sin, we seek to define right and wrong in our own terms rather than in God's terms. So this was the disobedience of Adam and Eve that ushered sin into the garden, that ushered sin into the world. You know, but the story of Adam and Eve isn't just about two historical people. It's a story about the nature of humanity In total. In the New Testament, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, right? And fall short of the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So the consequence of sin for Adam and Eve was grave. The consequence of sin for Adam and Eve was death. And though death wasn't immediate, death was inevitable. One of the truths that we see from Genesis 3 is the offer of life eternal, the offer of life immortal, has always been found in connection with living in right relationship with God. The offer of life eternal, the offer of life immortal, has always been found in connection with living in right relationship with God. Adam and Eve were created mortal. They weren't created immortal. If they were created immortal, why was there a tree of life in the midst of the garden for them to eat from? That would be redundant. And so as mortal beings, the way for them to have this antidote to their mortality is through a right relationship with God. But when this relationship with God is severed because they chose themselves over God, they are no longer privy to this antidote for their mortality. And they're exiled. They're banished from the garden. So that's what sin is. It's rejection of God. But the next question is why do we sin? Why do we sin? Genesis 
3 teaches us truth about the nature of humanity. <clears throat> Adam and Eve, in the best possible place, under the best possible conditions, still made the moral choice to disobey God. Adam and Eve, in the best possible place, under the best possible conditions, still made the moral choice to disobey God. Translation, newsflash, if we were in the same situation as Adam and Eve, we would do the same exact thing. And so Genesis 3 tells us that sin is the result of rebellion, human rebellion. God created Adam and Eve as mortal beings who were morally innocent with moral freedom to choose obedience over disobedience. But they chose disobedience over obedience. Why? Because they wanted to be like God. And when they did, Adam and Eve's sin introduced sin into the world. And when Adam and Eve's sin introduced sin into the world, it corrupted every human relationship. The divine-human relationship corrupted. The human-human relationship corrupted. The human-creation relationship corrupted. So that now we're born into a warped, distorted world. So why do we sin? We sin because we choose disobedience. I sin because I choose disobedience. We choose our own way. We, like Adam and Eve, mistake independence for freedom. We mistake independence for freedom. But in reality, Adam and Eve's independence from God didn't give them greater freedom. It gave them bondage. It brought them into bondage. It gave them death. So, Adam and Eve sought independence, but they got bondage. Why do we fall for the oldest lie in the world? That autonomy, that independence gives us freedom that we can make our own way, that we can be like God. It's a smokescreen. God did not create us to live independently from him. God created us to live dependently on him. God didn't create us to live independently from him, but he created us to live dependently on him. So the last question, how do we meet God in a fallen world. How do we meet God in a fallen world? As we'll see next week, Adam and Eve were banished. They were exiled from the garden. No longer would they walk with God and talk with God on a daily basis. Throughout the Old Testament, community life for God's people always revolved around a place of worship and meeting with God. This was the temple and the tabernacle. What we need to understand is that meeting with God begins with recognizing and owning that we, like Adam and Eve, have sinned against God. <clears throat> understanding that we have made a moral choice to pursue our own way above God's way. And that moral choice makes us culpable of sin. Guilty. We are guilty of sin because we have chosen our own way over God's way. God calls this morally evil and wicked. 
And so how do we meet God in a fallen world? Well, first, we must begin with recognizing that and owning that we have sinned against God. And because of that sin, like Adam and Eve, we have been exiled, banished from God's sacred space. We've been separated from God because of our sin, but we also need to know that God is not far off. In fact, God is near. Dr. David shared Romans 5.18 in the beginning, which speaks about the reverse of what happened with sin and and Adam. It's there on the screen for you to follow along. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. What is this act of righteousness? This act of righteousness that the New Testament speaks about is the act of Jesus Christ giving his life to pay for the debt of sin, of my moral evil and wickedness, the debt of sin against God. Jesus Christ himself gave his life so that he would satisfy this debt, the debt that's owed for my sin. This is the act of justification. This, this is the righteousness that leads to justification and life for all men. All? Which, who's all? Everyone who, who accepts this gift by faith, this gift of Jesus Christ. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So how do we meet God in a fallen world? God no longer dwells in temples. He no longer dwells in the garden, the Garden of Eden. But instead what we see in the gospel is that God came down. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us he dwelt among us what was the tabernacle well it was a place for the old testament community of faith to go to meet with god but now god has come to meet with us he has come in the person of jesus christ and all who by faith believe in this work of jesus christ will have eternal life how do we meet god in a fallen world we meet him through jesus christ in order to do that We must repent of our sin, acknowledge our guilt before God for our own sin, confess that he is Lord, and surrender our lives to his leadership. If you've never done that, if you've never believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can do that by by praying and, and saying to God, telling him that you're, you recognize that you've been running from him, you recognize that you have sin, you recognize that you have guilt before him and you want forgiveness for that, confess it to him and ask him, surrender your life to him, believe upon the resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and surrender your life to him. If you have questions about how to do that or just want to know more information about that, at the end of the service this morning, after we partake of the table, the elements, uh, a couple of us will be, a couple of the elders will be over here uh, on this right side by the cross, and we would love to speak with you and pray with you about what it means to surrender your life to Christ. If you have questions, we want to answer them. So come and meet us over here after the service. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we 
As we approach this time where we come to the table, we thank you, Lord God, that you are the sovereign creator and that you created us for intimacy with you, for intimacy with one another, but also that we would live our lives in dependence on you. Forgive us, God, for walking autonomously, independently of you. Father, forgive us for walking in our own strength and pursuing our own way and exalting our own selves above you. For, Lord, you are the sovereign creator of the universe. And it's foolish of us to think that independence from you gives us freedom. And so, Lord, we cast ourselves upon you with a renewed dependence, a renewed sense of walking after you and with you and and following you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.